Together, as we have been working through the Gospel of John, we have been in the chapter 7 for a few weeks. We'll complete chapter 7 today, um, and we'll be looking at John chapter 7, verses 37 to 52. So I encourage you to look along in your Bible as I read John chapter 7, verses 37 through 52. On the last day, that great day of the feast... Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. <laughs> Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And so this, as we said, is the, uh, the, the festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, or as it's called in Hebrew, Sukkot. Chapter 6, Feast of pa pa Passover was, was about to come, so... Between chapter 6 and 7, about six months. This Feast of Tabernacles is the last of the seven feasts of the year. It's a fall feast. It's a fall festival, a fall harvest feast. And it was a great feast, especially at a time of just real joyful celebration. The rabbi said, if you haven't seen the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, you know, at the temple, you just really haven't seen joy. I mean, it's just... It was just a time of great celebration because uh, they, you know, it was a celebration for one thing of, of the harvest, especially uh, the, the olives and other things were being brought in. It was a, you know, the season of growing and harvesting was done. Um, it was also a, a feast that was meant to remember the feast, the time of wandering in the wilderness where they lived in booths or tabernacles. They weren't the kind of branch tabernacles or booths that they were living in in Jerusalem to celebrate. But it was a time of remembering God's faithfulness and mercy during that time. And so we see Jesus coming for this. This is one of those three feasts where all the men of Israel were supposed to gather, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. So at the end of the feast, we see Jesus rising up. On the last day, verse 37, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
Remember, Jesus had gone to tabernacles, to the feast. He didn't go right away. His brothers were saying to him, you know, why don't you, uh, why don't you go up and, and, and go to the feast? And he declined. He uh, said, you go right now. But he came, went up later. And then at the midpoint, uh, he did go and he spoke in the temple. Remember in verses 28 and 29, Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple saying, you both know me and you know where I'm from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I'm from him, and he sent me. And so, and that caused a stir. So the seven days uh, there in the temple, they would come every day for the ceremonies. At the midpoint, Jesus stands up and cries out, here I am. And that became the talk of the town. That became the issue, and everybody had opinions. Well, on the last day of the feast, he makes another very a strong statement where he stands up in the temple courts and he cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I, I, it's, I think it's pretty clear Jesus is, is making a, a, a reference to part of the ceremony of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a seven-day feast. As I said, it remembered God's provision. Uh, they were supposed to bring certain uh, vegetable things that reminded them of, of the abundance of God's provision in the land. But one of the ceremonies they had every day involved a pouring out of water at the altar. It was a big deal. They would go from the Temple Mount down into the valley south, uh, you know, just below south of the uh, Temple Mount. It'd be about 500 yards downhill to the Pool of Siloam. If you were with us on Wednesday night, I showed you some videos about that. It's kind of interesting. Uh, archaeology in Israel is constantly uncovering things that they didn't know about before. And so the, for years they thought they knew where the pool of, pool of Siloam was. And then in 2004, they actually discovered the Pool of Siloam. It was this, this huge pool-like structure uh, where people would go and do their immersion, ritual immersion to purify themselves before going to the temple. Well, like I said, what happened was uh, in 2004, there was a, a, a drainage pipe leak. And so they brought in the tractors, and as they're dr driving them along, digging up the dirt. Have you ever noticed that sometimes you're digging and you hear, you hear a sound and think, that's not dirt? And, and so the sound told them there was something under there, and they said, stop everything, bring in the archaeologist, and discovered stones that are over 2,000 years old. Going, well, probably 2,500 years old. They discovered the Pool of Siloam. So with that, they now going back to the time of Jesus, they would go down to this pool with a, a, golden, uh, a, a golden pitcher and they would dip it into that pool and take out, uh, from best I can figure, about a quart or more of water and they would walk back up the 500 yards to the temple. And it was a big procession. It was all exciting. And then they would walk around the altar and, and, and pour out the offering at the altar, of the, uh, pour out the water as a, as a what they call a libation or a liquid offering at the altar. So the point is, it was a big deal to go all the way down the hill, get that pitcher of water, bring it all the way back up the hill, go to the temple, go to the altar, pour it out. You got the importance that water was a part of the ritual. And then Jesus stands up and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You see, the water reminded them, the whole Feast of Booths 
Remember the 40 years in the wilderness living in tents? The water reminded them. And for 40 years in the wilderness, God provided water. Um, you can't live very long without water. It's essential. And you go to the Sinai Peninsula and there's no water. <laughs> but God provided, even to the point of splitting a rock and letting it flow out. But the whole point was, it was a reminding, one, God provided for those 40 years, God provided precious water, miraculously. Like he provided bread from heaven. But also, this is the fall festival, just getting into the season when there was one of the two seasons of rain. They had some rain in spring and rain in the fall. It was also kind of a remembrance that God provides the rain they need. But now Jesus says, come to me if you're thirsty and drink. So what he's saying is, thirst is a terrible need. And he says, we, you have a greater need than water. You have a need in your heart to be satisfied. And he says, if anyone is thirsty for heart thirst, let him come to me. Let him come to me and drink. Then he goes on in verse 37 and he says, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of, the, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so now what do you mean come to me? What he's saying is believing in him as Savior. So, so Jesus has used different ways of expressing what it means to trust in him. Come to him. Believe in him. Drink of him, eat of him, as he used it in, in the earlier chapter. But when he says, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I think they're, they're meant to remember what they're thinking about in the Exodus. Chapter 17, verse 6. Moses said, behold, I stand before you on the rock in Horeb. You shall, God said and to Moses, and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that people may drink. And Moses did so. You know, when you look at a rock, have you ever heard of, that's like getting blood out of a turnip or something, you know. Moses standing before a rock and said, I'll give you water. And I can imagine the people saying, oh, right. I told him to wear that hat in the sun. It's getting to him. And then he strikes the rock and all of a sudden just bursting forth provision of glorious water. And what does Jesus say? If you believe in me, out of your heart will, will flow rivers of living water. And so then he goes on in typical Jesus way. When he's talking about, I'm going to provide water flowing out of you. When he's talking about water, he's not talking about water. Verse 39, he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So with that, that ceremony of the pouring out of the water, the reminder of God's provision, Jesus uses that as a picture of the Holy Spirit's ministry in the heart of a believer. It's spiritually satisfying. It, it meets our deepest need. And it, 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 it's an abundant provision like a river. Uh, by the way, notice he says, what John tells us, um, he, he, the Holy Spirit was not yet given 
because Jesus was not yet glorified. Um, that's kind of important for us to remember that uh, in the, Holy, the Holy Spirit is God. One of the three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He always exists. He's eternal. The Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament. Genesis 1, he was there at creation. Um, and the Holy Spirit would come upon and fill people in the Old Testament. Uh, he would uh, fill a king for service like David. And that's why when David sinned, he would say, take not your Holy Spirit away from me. In the Old Testament, the giving of the Holy Spirit was temporary to equip and enable for service. Like when Samson, it says the Holy Spirit came upon him so that he could defeat the Philistines. Um, the Holy Spirit would come upon artisans to give them the skill to work in the tabernacle. Those were temporary fillings or workings of the Holy Spirit. But when we come to Pentecost, when we come to the New Testament, after Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, then God pours out his Holy Spirit as a permanent gift to every believer. That wasn't true in the Old Testament. Sometimes we talk about you know, dispensations, and, and the, there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. One difference, this is a clear distinction. In the Old Testament, there was a different ministry of the Holy Spirit. God hasn't changed, but the ministry of the Holy Spirit changes at Pentecost when he's poured out. Now, instead of being a temporary enabling for service, now he becomes a permanent possession of the believer. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 uh, speak that kind of strongly. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Paul tells the Ephesians, in whom you also believed, speaking again of, of Christ, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. What he's saying is, when you trusted Jesus Christ as, as Savior, you were sealed, he says, with the Holy Spirit. He's using a picture of the ancient world. When, when you wanted to show possession or security, you put a seal on it, a wax seal you put, or a clay seal. You put an impression uh, on it. That was a guarantee. I understand maybe in, in some of the trucking industry, some trucks have to be sealed to, so that what was packed is what delivered. And so there would be a seal there. You break the seal. When you open it, you're taking possession. It's a guarantee. What he's saying is to the believer, the Holy Spirit is that word guarantee is, is like the word security in a financial transaction. You're going to buy a house and you might put down a deposit or whatever you might want to buy. Buy a car and, and say that what that means is if I don't come back and buy this car, I lose my, my, my security payment. I, I lose my earnest payment. Well, that's the word that's used for the Holy Spirit here. If God doesn't complete the transaction of bringing his home to glory, he has to forsake and forfeit the Holy Spirit. Well, how can God the Father forfeit the Holy Spirit? He can't. That's the point. Uh, some people will say, well, it's only a $100 earnest. I can, I'd, I've got a better deal here. I don't mind losing $100. God can't lose the Holy Spirit. And so what he's saying is, when the Holy Spirit is given to us, that is the absolutely secure guarantee our salvation is assured. 
that Holy Spirit will be with us straight into glory. In verse 14 of Ephesians 1, he is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. In other words, until we're in God's presence, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our salvation. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit changes when Christ's ministry on earth is finished. And John will talk more about that later to his disciples. But that's what he's referring to here. He's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit who would well up like a fountain of living water. So again, I want you to just notice two different ways Jesus talks about salvation. Come to me and drink or believe in me. There's different ways we can express the same truth. To trust in him, to believe in him, to repent. Those are all kind of different ways of thinking about coming to Christ for salvation. But he uses the idea of drinking like he did it. Eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. That's too appropriate to take into our life. It's not enough to know the facts about it. You know, there, nowadays, you, know, you go to a restaurant and they tell you all the nutritional facts about something. And sometimes there's information there you really don't want to know. <laughs> Who knew that for... A small hamburger, there'd be a quart and a half of oil. I don't understand it. But, but, but all that to say, all, here's all the nutritional facts. But those nutritional facts don't relate to you unless you actually take it into your life. And that's why Jesus says, drink of me. I will satisfy your thirst, but you must receive me into your life. It's that personal response to Jesus Christ. Well, so again, he makes this personal broad statement, and then that stirs up the crowd again. Verses 40 to 44, but notice he says in verse 40 to 43, Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard the saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David, from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. So the Lord's sermon brought mixed reaction. Some called him the prophet. Notice, not a prophet, the prophet. That's a reference to Deuteronomy 18, 15. Moses said this to the people. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. In other words, he's saying, okay, who, Moses was not just a prophet. He was the, the, the giver of God's truth. And he's saying, there is coming a prophet like me. Listen to him. That's speaking, so that's speaking of the Messiah. But some, but some of the Jews thought that would, there would be the Messiah and this coming prophet, the, the prophet. Well, it's actually the same person, but... So some people thought, well, well, Jesus is the prophet who's not the Messiah. Uh, so, so that's kind of nice. They say, well, he's, he's a prophet. He's, he's like Moses. I mean, he's, he's, he's important. He's powerful. We, we should listen to him. But that again reminds me of the, the quote I've mentioned a number of times from C.S. Lewis, where C.S. Lewis says, it's not enough to know the facts. Um, he said, I'm, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. 
I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. He goes on to say, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. And so when they're saying, oh, Jesus is the prophet, well, that's nice they say nice things about him, but that's not enough. If you truly believe he's the prophet, then Moses said, you need to hear him. So they're, they're kind of just looking out and, and talking about it like someone might talk about a, a, a baseball team or something. Well, yeah, that's a good team. Or that, but it's not a personal response of trust and obedience in him. Others said, well, he's not the prophet. He's the Christ. Now that word, the Christ, and I sometimes I use the word Messiah. That's the same thing. Christ is the Greek term meaning anointed one. Messiah is the Hebrew or Aramaic term meaning the anointed one. But no, it's, there's, there's one Messiah who's coming, one ultimate Savior. The anointed one in the sense of God in the Old Testament, if someone was a king, they were anointed by God. And priests were anointed by God. Well, he's the, the priest king. He is the ultimate one. And so some said, he's the prophet. That's good. Some said, he's the Messiah. That's good. They're right about Jesus being the Messiah, but they don't know how right they are. Very few of the disciples even really understood what it meant that he was the Messiah. He was the predicted Savior. But in the Jewish world of the time, there were... I, did, I saw somebody falling asleep. And if you do it again, I'm going to whack it really hard. No. Um, some of you, uh, I mean, some of them understood Messiah, but what did they mean by that? They, they thought of him as, uh, some of them thought, well, he's coming as the king. He's going to conquer the enemy. That would be the Romans about that time. He's going to establish his kingdom and peace on earth. Great. Some noticed that the Bible talked about the Messiah, the servant of God who would suffer for our sin, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53. So some said there's going to be two Messiahs. Uh, they didn't couldn't quite, or some said, well, just one Messiah, and they'd say it's only the suffering one or, or only the ruling one. They didn't understand the fullness of he would first come to conquer sin by dying for it, and then he'd come to conquer the world and establish his reign on earth. Nor did they understand that he was God in the flesh. So they, they used the label, they used the terminology, but they didn't really grasp all that it meant. And so, whatever they understood, when they said the word Messiah, very few of them actually were trusting in him as Savior. Again, it was kind of theoretical. It was kind of a topic of discussion. It wasn't a personal response. Kind of like we might talk about the news, or again, talk about the sports, or talk about politics. We might talk about those things, and yet maybe not fully engage in them. Some said, and when they said he's the Messiah, well, will the Christ come from Galilee? Because they all knew when they said, Jesus, where is he from? Jesus of Nazareth. 
Matter of fact, it even says that all over the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, well, king of the Jews, it says, but, but everybody knew of him as coming from Nazareth. That's in Galilee. And so they said, has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the seed of David, from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? This is in Jerusalem. They're in part of Judah. And so they're proud of the fact that they're Judah. That's the royal tribe. And remember when the wise men came to Jerusalem, the rabbis said, where's Messiah born? Bethlehem. That's what Micah 5, 2 says. So they're saying, Jesus can't be the Messiah. He's from Galilee. Well, they were right and they were wrong. He is from Galilee, but he is the Messiah. Because, yes, he lived in Galilee but he was, and was raised there, but he was born in Bethlehem. And some people will say, where are you from? It all depends who's asking. If I'm overseas, America. Or I might say, um, I'm from Texas. Unless I don't care what they think about me, and then I might say California. You know, in other words, what do you mean? Where am I from? Are you talking about where I was born and raised, or where I live now? And so, in the same way, or I'll have people talk to me and say, "Where are you from?" I know it's not Texas, because they've heard me talk for a little while. And so I'll say, "Okay, I'm from California." Well, so they they knew Jesus lived in Galilee. He was raised in Galilee, Jesus of Nazareth. But they didn't bother asking the question, but where was he born? Where was he from? They, 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 looked, they looked for the negative. They looked for the uh, possible exception to the truth. And they jumped on that. A lot of people approach the Bible that way. Whenever they find a, a, a difficult passage, they assume that, see, that proves the Bible is wrong. Uh, because uh, it, it's got this trouble. We sometimes would call those difficult passages. I don't like to call them contradictions. The Bible doesn't contradict itself because one author wrote the whole thing through 40 plus people over 1,500 years. But there are no contradictions in the Bible. But there are passages that we have a hard time reconciling because we don't have all the information. And that's the struggle. We don't have all the information. But the critic likes to jump on any apparent difficulty. See, Jesus is from Nazareth. Nazareth is from Galilee. The Bible says Messiah is from Bethlehem. Jesus can't be the Messiah. Well, let's go back to my, Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and see where Jesus really is from. He was born in Bethlehem, fulfilling the prophecy in a wonderful way. So, like I said, there are a lot of people that do that today with God's word. They don't ask the questions to, to understand. Well, how do you deal with this issue? No, they just want to jump straight on the negative and, and use as an excuse for dismissing the Bible without seriously taking it to heart. Their problem is not understanding. It's a heart attitude. And Jesus said that back in chapter 7, verses 16 and 17, remember? Jesus answered and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know concerning the doctrine whether it's from God. In other words, if you have a heart to know and please God, you'll know my word is true. If you have a heart to know and please the Lord, 
you will know the Bible is true. It was amazing to me when I came to know Christ as Savior, how quickly, for one thing, the Bible started making sense to me. I remember when I was kind of still on the path and examining the, the, the claims of Christ, I, I would read the, the Bible and, man, I could not make head or tails of it. It made no sense to me. And then I came to know Christ and all of a sudden, it all came together. I remember just even Old Testament passages. Oh, that's what's going on here in the New Testament. It was exciting to me to see how it all fit together. Because now I knew the author. And I was enabled by the Holy Spirit to understand. I had a heart to, to believe and obey. But when someone comes with a critical attitude, it's a closed book. If Let me just, so just say, if you're in that place in your life where you know, you're quick to see the criticism and the negative and attack the Bible. It must not be true because I see this problem. Learn a lesson from this crowd. They missed out incredibly on Jesus because they were quick to jump on the critical instead of embracing the Christ. Don't make that mistake. Reminds me of a time years ago uh, I received a phone call one time and said, okay, Drake, um, I've just finished college, got some free time, I'm no longer studying all my textbooks, and so um, I thought I'd you know, consider the claims of Christianity before I totally reject it. Here's your shot. What do you want to tell me? And so, uh, and, and so I sent, and so we started talking, and then, he, and, and then he said, well, you know, the Bible is full of, uh, of, of contradictions and errors. And so I sent him some materials that address that. One of the things is, maybe some of you remember the book by Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a, a Verdict. So I, I sent him that book, and I said, here, this will address those issues. And then from then on in our conversations, he would say, uh, well, you know, the Bible's full of errors and contradictions. And I said, wait a minute, did you read that book I sent you? Well, no, not yet. Then say, you can't say that. That's not intellectually honest. I've already answered that question. Read the book. Next thing. And so he admitted, okay, you're right. That's not fair. And we went on like that for months. And then it was my joy to go and see his uh, baptism as he professed his faith in Christ. But he began with that. It's so easy to say, oh, the Bible has full of contradictions and errors. That's an easy little statement to make. But if you really want to understand it, dig into it. And you will find that those so-called errors and contradictions make sense in the big picture. It's like, you know, putting together a puzzle or, or working through, it's, it's taking all the data and putting it together, you understand the big picture. But don't just go to that easy cop-out. Oh, oh there's, there's a problem here. The Bible must not be true. That's what they were doing. Oh, Jesus is from Galilee, Messiah is from Bethlehem. No more discussion. Don't make that same mistake. In verse 44, now some of them wanted to take him. Here's another. So some said it's the prophet. Some said it's the Messiah. Some said, eh, it can't be the Messiah. Some wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Some of them wanted to arrest him and put him in jail and execute him. They just wanted him silenced. But can you see in those categories of 2,000 years ago, so many people today. Oh, Jesus is a, a great moral and religious teacher. C.S. Lewis says you can't use that one. That's, that's not enough. He said he was God. Either he is or he isn't. 
Some say he's the Christ. They, they use the label lightly, but they don't really mean, they don't understand what it means. Oh, Christ died for our sins. But they're not trusting in him as Savior. It's just a phrase to use. Some look for loopholes. No, he can't be God. He can't be God. He can't be Savior. Some want to silence him. Well, that seems like the spirit of our age now, isn't it? I'm hearing more and more where, where those who are speaking for Christ are being um, um, hidden by algorithms, are being canceled. The cancel culture is so strong. More and more, where it used to be, you know, there was some, you know, it wasn't too, too long ago where public schools had prayer every day. Uh, now, you, you know, it's don't you dare mention Christ. Now, you can mention a lot of other things. But don't you dare mention Christ. Don't you dare mention prayer. Don't you dare mention the Bible. We had the Gideons here, remember, recently, and they said it used to be we could go into the campus and give away free Bibles, and it was a wonderful thing. Now we can't. Now they can't. They have to. They have to stay out on the street. It used to be they could go to a a, a hotel and say, uh, "We'd like to make sure you have a, a Bible for every hotel room." Great, bring them on. Now they're being told no by more and more hotel uh, hotel chains. This 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 let's just let's just lock him up. That was another response of that day, and that's a growing trend in our day as well. As we're learning in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Man's heart still has the same basic responses to Christ. Now we, we then go and see what do the leaders say in, in verses 45 to 52, but verse 45, then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees and they said to them, why have you not brought him? So they'd sent the their temple guards to go and arrest him. And they came back empty-handed. And they said, where is he? You're supposed to seize him. The officer answered, no man ever spoke like this man. Now these men were the temple guards. They, they worked every day. I mean, that's where they spent their whole day in the temple. They heard all the traveling teachers and rabbis and everyone else getting up and, and speaking. They heard more sermons than about anyone else could imagine. They'd heard them all. They'd heard all kinds. And, so, and they said, we've never heard a sermon like this. All the rabbis we've heard, no one taught like this one does. Reminds me of what was said and it's earlier in the Gospel. Matthew 7, verse 29. It said, Jesus taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes or the rabbis. Luke 4, 32 the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for his word was with authority. See, the, the rabbis liked to show how many rabbis they could quote. This rabbi says this, this rabbi says this. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, and spoke with authority. And so these temple guards were probably, they would listen and say, I've never heard someone preach like he does. There was never a rabbi that says, come and drink of me. So they thought, no, I don't think we should arrest this man. And so the, the leaders weren't too happy. The Pharisees answered and said, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So they get angry at these temple guards. They expected, uh, by the way, the question expects a negative answer. 
You aren't deceived also, are you? Have you are, are you making a mistake of being deceived? Are you, are, are you buying into this guy's error? This heresy? And then they say, well, what's the answer to that? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? This would be the rabbinic equivalent to follow the science. Listen to the experts. We are the experts. And we will tell you what's right and wrong. None of us believe in Jesus. So who do you think you are? Or are you like this crowd that doesn't know the law and is accursed? There was an expression the rabbis used at that time called, it was Am Haaretz, people of the ground. Farmers, laborers. And that was meant as a, as a label of mockery. The ground people. The, the, the people who worked in the dirt. That was, a, that, was a, a, that was a way calling them the ignorant sinners. They don't know the law and they don't keep the law. They don't follow the hand-washing principles like we do. They're, they're the Amha'arts, the people of the ground. They're ignorant. And he's saying, are you going to follow that, that crowd? That bunch of losers who don't know anything? We will tell you what to believe. Again, does this not sound like Today, don't follow the evidence. Don't examine the truth in your own heart. Leave that to us. We'll tell you what to believe. And so that's how they respond. But they have an agenda of their own. Jesus is threatening their power base. If Jesus is the Messiah, he doesn't buy into all the oral traditions of the rabbis. If he is right, they're wrong. And so they're going to do everything they can to shut him down. They, why didn't you arrest him? Well, no one preaches like he does. Listen to us. He's a heretic. Trust us. That's their argument. So there's, there's not a Pharisee out there. Now again, remember the Pharisees were the, the that was a it was a special group. It wasn't just a label. It was it was there were only about six thousand Pharisees in all of Israel. And they said there's not a Pharisee that believes in him, a Pharisee or a Sadducee. None of the leadership, none of the Sanhedrin believes in him. Then verse fifty tells us now Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, he was a Pharisee. Yeah, and he was in the Sanhedrin. And John, every time he mentions him, he came, he's the one who came to Jesus by night. You can almost hear John saying, chicken. <laughs> but he doesn't. <laughs> but it's interesting, just like every time they mention Judas, the one who betrayed him, Nicodemus, the one who came by night. But he was one of them. He was a Pharisee. He was the San they just said there's not a Pharisee out there. There's not a member of the Sanhedrin who believes in Jesus. Then Nicodemus spoke up. Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? They answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look. No prophet has arisen out of Galilee. So Nicodemus speaks carefully. He doesn't flat out say, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. 
I'm not sure if he's there yet. But he kind of uses the political approach. He, he applies to the procedural issues. Wait a minute, don't, shouldn't we talk to him before we pass judgment? Now, where does Nicodemus, you know, he, he, we see him again later in the book. Chapter 19, verses 38 and 39. After the crucifixion of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, the religious leaders, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, chicken, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. So both of these are religious leaders secretly believing in Jesus. So was, Jesus, was Nicodemus already persuaded this chapter 7? I don't know. But at least I think he, he was on the way. But he doesn't have the boldness to just stand up and say, wait a minute, let's look at the evidence. Let's, it's, uh, Jesus is the Messiah. As he told Jesus, no one could do what you do if he's not from God. But he doesn't say that here. But he raises the question. Can we really make a judgment without evaluating the evidence? And you know what? That's a good question to ask someone. Have you really examined the evidence? You're, you're questioning if Jesus is God or, and if, it's, if he truly is a savior. You might say to a friend, uh, can I give you a copy of the Gospel of John? Why don't you just read this book? It's, it's pretty straightforward. It won't take you too long. And before you do, just ask God to help you understand it and help you see if Jesus truly is God and if you should trust in him as Savior. Because why did John write the book? So that you might know and believe. But in other words, that's a reasonable approach. Would, would you like to consider the evidence? Maybe we could get together for coffee and we could talk about it. So Nicodemus is saying, can't we at least examine the, the evidence? He tries that subtle approach. And what's their response? They don't engage the question. They attack the person. That is so typical 2,000 years ago and typical today. Instead of dealing with the facts at hand, attack the person. That's called the ad hominem uh, argument. So they, they attack him. What are, you, what, are you from Galilee? And again, that's a slur. The Galileans, you know, they were the uneducated. They call it Galilee of the Gentiles. Don't tell me you're from Galilee. You're one of his ignorant followers. That's a common strategy. Attack the person. Don't consider the facts. But notice he mentioned the scriptures. Doesn't our law tell us that we should hear someone before we make pass a decision. And so they say, well, check the scriptures. No prophet has ever come from Galilee. Wrong. Nicodemus could say back to them, why don't you check the scriptures? There's one case that's very clear, and that's the prophet Jonah. In Jonah chapter... Um, Jonah chapter 1 verse 1 not John, Jonah we find something about him he's one of those minor prophets you can quickly pass over him 
If you're looking for it, it's page 1251. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Okay, so he was the son of Amittai. 2 Kings 4.25 tells us something. God restored the territory of Israel from the entrance, or the king restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai. Same, same Jonah prophet, the whale guy. Um, We're told he is the son of Amittai, but we're also told he was the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Gath-Hefer is a town in Galilee. It's uh, located between Nazareth and Capernaum. So he's more Galilean than Jesus is. Jesus lived in Nazareth. He lived in um, Gath Heifer, which was north of Nazareth. Jonah was a Galilean. So they're saying, no prophet comes from Galilee. Well, actually, Jonah did. And there's good reason to suggest Hosea did, because he was a prophet to the northern tribes. But, but it's kind of ironic. They attack him, and they, they just throw out, well, read your Bible. It's not in there. Well, it is. A lot of times people will do that to you. Nowhere in the Bible does it say Jesus is God. Well, that, those three words together, maybe not. But come with me to the book of John and we'll show you that Jesus is God. And they'll show you again and again. The Bible's full of contradictions. Like what? Well, I don't know. Have you ever read the Bible? No, but it's full of contradictions. In other words, that's the kind of strategy they're using. Attack the person. Throw out these generalizations that aren't even true. So the Pharisees, in their response to Nicodemus and to the guards, are showing they don't meet the qualification Jesus gave. If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God. What that's showing is they don't really want to know God. Because if they were really seeking to know God, they would hear and respond in faith to Jesus. The problem of unbelief is not intellectual. It's the will. It's the heart. Their heart's closed, and so it doesn't make sense to them. They use that attack-the-person strategy rather than listen to the Bible. But before we're so hard, too hard on the Pharisees, we need to look in the mirror. Do you ever use those defense mechanisms? Examine your own heart. Are we open to the Scripture? Do, are, do we uh, maybe distort, misrepresent things to protect our own interests? Do we, are we like the Pharisees? Attack the person? Confuse the facts? Or do we come with a humble heart that says, I want to know God's will and way? Like I said, don't pick too hard on the Pharisees. I think there's some Pharisee in each and every one of us. Another question to ask you is, what is your response to the claims of Jesus? It's not enough to say, I think he's a prophet. It's not enough to say, I think he's the Messiah. I thought he's the Christ who died for sin. Have you personally come to him in faith? Did you drink of him? Did you eat of him? Did you embrace him into your life by faith? Don't be satisfied 
with an awareness of facts. Jesus promised that if anyone believes in him, out of his heart it will flow, will flow rivers of living water. And again, that's a precious and beautiful thing in the Middle East. An abundance of provision. I read of a pastor who visited a crippled woman, and he wrote this. When this girl was 18, she was seized with a dreadful affliction, and the doctor said that to save her life, he must take off her foot. Next, the other foot was removed. Disease continued to spread, and her legs had to be amputated at the hips. Then the malady broke out in her hands, and by the time I saw Miss Higgins, all that remained of her was just the trunk of her body. For 15 years now, she has been in this condition. I went to offer her comfort, but I did not know how to speak to her or what to say, this pastor says. I found the walls of her room covered with texts, all of them Bible texts, all of them radiating joy and peace and power. She explained that one day while lying in bed, she inquired of the Lord what a total amputee could possibly do for him. Then an inspiration came to her. Calling a friend of hers who was a carpenter, she had him construct a device to fit her shoulder and attached to it an extension holding a fountain pen. And then she began to write letters witnessing to the grace of God. She had to do it entirely with the body movement. I have a hard time this way. Can you imagine moving your shoulder to write letters? And again, this is an older thing, so she had to dip the fountain pen, write the letters, and, and he even makes the statement... Um, yet her penmanship was beautiful. She was, has now received over 1,500 replies from individuals who've been brought to Christ through the letters she's produced in that way. Those are the ones responding who've trusted Christ. Can you imagine how many letters she wrote? The preacher said to her, How do you do it? And she smilingly replied, You know, Jesus said of his own, that of them shall flow rivers of living water. I believe in him. And he has helped me to overflow to others. Jesus said if we come to him, pouring out of our heart will be the rivers of the Holy Spirit, cleansing, refreshing, delighting, We might look at our own life and our circumstances and say, well, I don't have time. I don't have the ability. I think this woman smashes that. Don't you think so? What can we answer to her? 1,500 gospel-believing responses over 15 years. How many others? But what was her attitude in going to the Lord? Lord, how can I be used of you? What was her response? It's not, oh, I work hard. It's the Holy Spirit at work because I'm one of God's children. I've got, a, I've got a bursting forth spring of joy from my heart. Oh, I'm challenged by that. I'm challenged by that. Another passage comes to mind, and, and we're almost at the close here. In Jeremiah 2.13 we read, For my people have committed, speaking of Israel, two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, God said. 
and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's what he's saying is, you know what a cistern is? That's, that's not a well. Uh, it's, it's, a sto- it's a water storage place, um, uh, usually under a house. And cistern water isn't always the, the best water. And if you're drinking from a cistern, you probably have to figure out some filtration system to get, at least get the big stuff out. And so Jesus said, here, God said to his people, look, I'm, I'm a fountain. I'm an artesian well of fresh, glorious water. And you're going instead to a cistern when you go to the, the ways of the world around you, to all the idols and to the ideas of the world around you. That's like drinking from a cistern. He said, no, no, not a cistern, a broken cistern. It can't even hold water. It leaks. Or if we could put it in terms, maybe if you're out hiking or camping and, and, and you're, you're coming along and it's been a long, hot day and you're thirsty and, and you see the stream that's bubbling straight out of the snow mountains. Fresh, clear. Now some of you are thinking, I wonder what fish are in there. Forget that. We're just talking the water. Refreshing, cool water. Over here, a tank. Uh, kind of brackish. You can't see your hand if you put it six inches under the water. Dead fish. Now which one are you going to drink from? And God is saying, why would, why would, why would you turn from that glorious refreshing spring to drink that God gives us his truth he gives us his Holy Spirit he he, he pours out in abundance why would you go to the world's broken sister and Jesus using the same language of himself stands in the temple says come to me I'll give you rivers of living water If you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, hear the call of Christ. Forsake that cesspool and drink of God's refreshing trust in Christ. A child of God we we are, then are we refreshing others with that artesian well bubbling up the waters of life? Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, so boldly, so clearly presenting himself. Father, thank you for bringing us to you. Lord, may we bring others to Christ. May those refreshing streams of life be manifest in our lives, I pray it in Jesus' name.